Well, I, got, I appreciated an email I got this week from a good friend, and it's one of those, he sent me a, a newspaper story, and you really can't make this stuff up. I mean, this happened Thursday, okay? This event happened Thursday in Southington, Connecticut. Um, this fellow named Michael Gourneau had his cell phone in his back pocket, and somehow his greater gluteal, somehow his hind end dialed 911. He did not mean to do it, but somehow those numbers got pushed by the cell phone in his back pocket. So the emergency operator attended him. Um, he never knew that he had called. All she could hear was some, some sounds in the background and stuff, but of course they have to respond. So she was able to GPS kind of locate him and, and dispatch emergency services thinking maybe it was some kind of you know, a medical emergency or something like that. Actually, what it was, look it up. I mean, can't make this up. Actually, what it was, he was in the process of robbing scrap metal from this company there that, that makes basement doors. And so they showed up, and they caught him, and they called the owner of this of this, um, of this factory, and uh, he was charged with trespassing and larceny, and on April the 1st, he will be, or uh, 1st of April, he will be, um, I guess, indicted or whatever they do, so not a great one for him. I wouldn't call it an epic fail. It was close, but I mean, maybe that's the best thing that could happen to him, honestly, is to get caught, and, and maybe he'll have an opportunity now to kind of change his ways. But we have been talking about failure, and we know a lot about failure, don't we? We all have our stories of success and failure, be it in a relationship or a business or school or athletics. Um, we know what it's like to try and to fail, or just to make a decision that is so completely idiotic that it is doomed to failure. We understand that, and so hopefully this epic failure has spoken into our lives. Um, and what this series is, Epic Fail, from our, our stories from the Bible, um, and they are not just garden variety failure. These are the types of failures that just define people. I mean, you can't think of Jezebel without thinking failure. You can't think of Pharaoh who dealt with Moses and not think of the failure that he led his nation into, his army. His own son paid the price for his failure. You can't think of, of even more obscure stories, if you're familiar with them, like Nadab and Abihu, without thinking of Their lives were defined by failure. And so while all of us make mistakes, and plenty of them, God puts up these lives as sort of road signs, as sort of trail markers to say, don't do that. Don't be like her. Don't be like him. God wants for you and I to live in abundance. He wants for us to live in the fullness of all of the plans he has for us. So he wants for us to steer clear of some of these epic fails, some of these incredibly poor decisions and life choices that were made by some of the figures we have in the Bible. Now, Luke chapter 15, beautiful chapter. Uh, if you have your device or your Bible this morning, open to Luke chapter 15, or better yet, get on version where you can follow the sermon this morning on there and the scriptures. Luke chapter 15 is not typically a place um, you would think of in the Bible or, or particularly the New Testament as a, a centerpiece of failure. It is a beautiful chapter, including one of the most gorgeous stories. Um, meaningful stories to many of us, the story of the prodigal son. Um, it is a powerful chapter of Scripture. 
But it was a story that was directed towards some people who were teetering on epic fail. Um, they were the Pharisees, the religious scholars of the day. They, were, um, they knew more Torah than anybody else, more Scripture. They were squeaky clean. They were religious. And they saw Jesus, this upstart, renegade rabbi from Galilee of all places, and they saw him rubbing elbows with unsavory people. They saw him hanging out with who they considered to be the degenerates of society, the riffraff. And there he was having dinner parties at Matthew's house, um, hanging out with lepers and, and, and extending grace and having conversation with prostitutes and tax collectors. And frankly, they found it offensive. They found it offensive. After all, they worked so hard to be good to know their Bible and to go to church and to do all of the right things and hanging out with the wrong sorts of people, you know, that, that could contaminate your spirituality. So they found it offensive that Jesus hung out with these sorts of people. So before we get into the beautiful stories of Luke chapter 15, we find out why Jesus told those stories. So Luke 15 verses 1 to 2. Here's the setup, the background. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This guy's hanging out with the wrong sort of people. So here we go. Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion... He tells some stories. Story number one, and these are stories for the benefit of these Pharisees and these scribes. Um, story number one is a story about a lamb. This lamb has wandered away from the flock, and hence he has wandered away, wandered away from the protection of the shepherd. Um, the assurance of food and water wandered far away. There are 99 other lambs. They are safe, but one of them has gotten away, and the shepherd is deeply concerned leaves the 99 and goes on a search and rescue mission for this one lamb. Finds the lamb, hoists it onto his shoulders, carries it back, reunites it in the safety of the sheepfold with the other lambs, and then the shepherd proceeds to invite all of his friends over for a lamb rescue party. It honestly sounds a little Funny. Sounds a little over the top, doesn't sound completely balanced, doesn't it sounds kind of excessive to have a lamb finding party, but that's the point. God's love for sinners is not sensible, is not reasonable and measured. It is excessive. It is outlandish. And so Jesus says, So will heaven throw a party over one lost sinner who comes home. That is story number one, the story of a lost lamb. Story number two, the story of a lost coin. This woman, she has 
ten silver coins. Each one is worth about a day's wages. She has ten silver coins. One of them is missing. So she proceeds to light a lamp, get on her hands and knees, and she's crawling around her house looking for this coin. And finally, there it is, glimmering in the corner. She finds the coin that was lost. And she invites friends and neighbors and has a block party to celebrate the finding of her lost coin. Now, that's kind of silly. You found your coin, so now you're going to blow that coin and three others throwing this big party. But Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 10, in the same way I tell you, There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's what God is like. Story number three. This one will preach, folks. Story number three. It's a lost son, not a lost lamb, not a lost coin. It is a lost son. As the story begins, this son is struggling, struggling for independence, wrestling with living under his father's rules, having to wake up early and go out in the field and work the fields. This father, this son rather, is yearning for independence. And so in what is a massive breach of protocol and decorum, Because his son is, I mean, his father is still alive. He goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. Don't want to wait for you to pass away. Show me the Benjamins. I want the money. If that wasn't enough, the father is even wilder in his response. He says, yes. He yields. Divides up his estate amongst his sons. His younger son gets all of the money that would come to him, which would be, I guess, a third of the estate. The older son would get two-thirds. The younger son gets a third of the estate and gets as far away from dad as he possibly can, right? Travels off, the Bible says, to a distant land, but not only geographical distance here, travels as far away from the father's morals as far away from the father's values as he can possibly get. It is time to have some fun. Chapter 15, verse 13 says this. Not long after that, after he got his money, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Basically, gets away from home and for a few months has the time of his life. Um, I mean, this guy isn't off giving blood, right? This guy isn't off volunteering at a homeless shelter. This guy is what the Bible calls experiencing wild living. Use your imagination here. He is having an orgy of pleasure and self-indulgence and fun, and it is great, and people are gathering around him. Uh, He has an entourage and everything. That is, until the money (laughs) runs out. Until that credit card just won't work anymore. Until there's no money left, the friends disappear. He finds himself 
poor, unemployed, alone, and hungry in a foreign land. He gets the only job he can. And that is, you know the story, feeding pigs for a pig farmer. Slowly starving to death, even with this job, he longs to even be able to eat the pig slop. And finally, Scripture will say, Jesus will say, he comes to his senses. I mean, it's the only choice left, isn't it? Really. I got to go back home. Now, if it was reckless for him in a culture that values mother and father, for a culture that says rebellious sons can be stoned to death, if it was reckless for him to ask for his inheritance before the old man even passed away, think about how crazy this gamble is. Now that I have sacrificed my father's honor on the altar of my ego, now that I have humiliated my father among his family and among all of the community where he lives, I am going to go back for round two. And he understands the odds here are long. He understands that instead of being greeted with, with a shower of confetti, he may be greeted with a shower of stones. But he also knows his father well enough to know it's worth a chance. My father is a different sort of man. So he, you know the story, he's headed home, rehearsing his little speech. Everything needs to be just right so that maybe he'll be able to come into the home and feed his father's animals and work as a hired servant there. He practices this speech in verses 18 to 19. It goes like this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Of course, he'll be on his knees asking all of this. And this is what we love about the story. I mean, we love this because this is us, right? I mean, that, that's why this story is so powerful. That's why it's so moving to us. We have all been here. We have all strayed from God. We have all done what we knew was wrong. We have all made poor choices. We have all wandered away to a different, distant land. We have all been here, and that's why this story is so moving to us. In this drama, each of us has played either prodigal son or prodigal daughter at one time or another. So verse 20, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Obviously, his father was watching and waiting for this day. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I mean, you talk about a breach of protocol. The old man jumps over the wall around the house, hikes up his tunic, takes off running for his son. And even though that kid smells like pigs, looks like he's been living under a bridge for the last couple of years, his daughter, his father just holds him and kisses him. And they embrace for a long time. Forget the speech, son. Welcome home. 
And then the orders, the flurry of activity. Look, we we got to celebrate this. I thought you were dead, and you're back. My son is back. Get the get the fatted get the fatted calf killed. Prepare the barbecue. Get call in the band members. We're going to have some music, and we're going to have some dancing. Get this kid some fresh clothes. Put a ring on his finger. My son was gone. Now he's back. I thought he was dead. Turns out he's alive. We are going to have the biggest party this ranch has ever seen. And that's the way God welcomes back prodigal sons and daughters. And this is what we love about this parable, and it is at this point in the parable that we just want to say, Amen, Hallelujah, praise God. This is the perfect ending to the story. Only it's not the ending Jesus gives it. Jesus wants to talk to those squeaky clean religious folks who are on the fringe listening as the sinners are all crowded in around him. So he's going to introduce another character. Before I get to that other character, some of you all probably know what a photobomb is. I mean, you see these on the internet sometimes. A photobomb is essentially, we've already introduced you to epic fail, so here's photobomb. A photobomb is essentially like, let me just tell you, it's like you got your whole family ready for that family picture and you guys have all put on your khaki pants and matching white shirts and you're at the beach and the photographer is there and everything is perfect and everyone is smiling even the three-year-old boy everything looks just great and finally right as the picture is snapped there he is the overweight guy in a speedo who has wandered in behind the family there he is that's a photo bomb all right. Some other we got some other examples here. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's almost perfect, you know? Or what about this next one? You got to look carefully, but there he is. Photobombing. We have a photobomber. This is my favorite one this next one. <laughs> there she is with all her bridesmaids and some random person behind the window. But you don't have to be a human to photobomb. You can be, you can be a cat. <laughs> Look at that guy. He's ready for his picture, and their little brother comes in ruining everything. <laughs> well, as you work through the most beautiful parable, right up there with the Good Samaritan, as you work through that and your heartstrungs are, are being tugged at and, and you're responding to God's mercy, it's so perfect it's so wonderful there he is the older brother photobombing or better parable bombing there he is i mean you've got the family portrait father and lost son embracing the music the dancing the party but in the corner of the picture is this guy he has to show up and he has to ruin it let's start reading in verse 25 Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Yeah, the field. That's where he works a full day's work instead of being off blowing dad's cash. He was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants, asked him what was going on. 
Hey, your brother's come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Not going to be in this family picture, no. So his father went out and pleaded with him. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I guess that's how you did it back then. But when that son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? Come on. And then father speaks. My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He's alive. He was lost. But now he's found. Parable bomb. All of this grace and forgiveness and rejoicing and party and barbecue... It's out of control, folks. The older brother can't handle this. I mean, how about throwing in a little righteous indignation? How about a little scolding for this young son? How about a little silent treatment, Dad? How about sending him out to live in the slaves' quarters for a while, Dad? I mean, come on. I have been here working in your fields every day. I have obeyed your orders. I have been the good son, and I never got any party like this. It's wrong. It's unfair. So he corrects his father, essentially. And while all of the while, while the aroma of that barbecue comes floating out, intermingled with, with the sounds of laughter and music and dancing, the older son is just is just kicking at the ground, pouting, angry, bitter, heartbroken. You would think maybe, you know, older brother is right there. There's my younger brother. He's, he's alive. He's out there hugging him. He's out there high-fiving. Welcome back. You would think at the party, uh, the older brother and younger brother are going to be joined at the hip into the night as the party rolls on. But no, that's not going to happen. And so if the father in the story is God, and it is, If the prodigal son in the story is the wayward sinner who has come home to God, then the older brother in the story represents the squeaky clean, always did everything right, always checked all of the right boxes, Pharisee. Devoutly religious person who can't get a handle on God's grace. Who just, frankly, in the bottom of his heart, or her heart, struggles with the unfairness of all of this. On a deep level, the hyper-religious person thinks God's grace isn't fair. There must be some limit on it. It needs to be moderated. It needs to be contained. Let's not preach too much grace. Let's not talk too much about grace. Otherwise, things are going to get out of control around here. This older son has been working in the family business. 
has been a good son, while the other son hasn't been such a good son. So it is unfair, it is even wrong for the father to behave like this. In his heart, he believes that he deserves more than he is getting. And the younger son who has lived a wild lifestyle deserves considerably less than he is getting. And so he secretly congratulates himself on the rules that he's followed and the dutiful obedience he has performed in the house of his father. He has gotten very good at being good. And he wants a little recognition. So he sits on the outside. He is angry. He is bitter. He does not accept the reception that the father is giving to his younger brother. Have you ever heard the expression before, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into a garage makes you a car? It's true. You can memorize Scripture you can get up on Sunday morning and get to a church building. You can do a lot of, you can sing the songs and pray in Jesus. You can do a lot of the right things, and you can still be distant from the Father's heart. You don't need to run off into some wild and crazy lifestyle, go off to a distant land to be distant from the Father's heart. You can do it. In your local church. <laughs> it's the truth. Um, in this conversation with the father, think about how that, young, that older brother talks about his work in the father's house. He says, I have slaved in your house. You see, the older brother has defined his relationship with the father as one of slaveship, not sonship. The older, the older brother, despite all of his obedience and hard work, has missed out on what fundamentally it means to be with the father, and that is he has missed out on a friendship with his father. He doesn't enjoy his father. It's obvious from what he says, the work that he does is because he's supposed to do it. The work he does is fearing the rod of the master. I have slaved for you. And I never got any kind of party like this. The older brother only has harsh words for the younger brother, criticizes his father. In his opinion, his father is way off base, sharing all of these lavish gifts with the rebellious younger brother. I mean, he's been off in, with prostitutes and parties. I mean, you can see how he's thinking all of the worst about his younger brother, and he's probably right about what he's thinking at this point. But he can't rejoice in this young son coming back home. He just can't do it. And so he photobombs the perfect parable. I like the way dad kind of cuts in at the end and says, hear what you're saying, but Luke chapter 15, verse 31, hear what you're saying, but look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. You're not an employee of the family business like the other hired hands. You're my son. This house is your house. Those horses are your horses. Everything I have is yours, including my heart. 
but apparently you haven't gotten to know my heart very well. I haven't been withholding from you. I've, everything has been open to you the whole time. And so here we have the older son representing, as we said, these hyper-religious folks, these Pharisees, and they are sort of like the religious walking dead. I have always been a fan of zombie movies. I don't know why that is. Please don't psycho, psychoanalyze me. There's now a TV show on um, The Walking Dead. I, I, I like zombie movies. I do. You've got these folks that kind of sort of look like us. Um, they're humanoid in appearance. They are wearing clothing, and they're kind of walking around. I mean, people walk, but they're dead. <laughs> and here are these Pharisees. I mean, here they are. Boy, they look religious. I mean, they are sitting on the front row at church. I mean, they have more Bible memorized than we could hope to have memorized. They are good-looking folks. But they're dead. There's no life. There's only legalism. There's only a spirit of spiritual slavery. No joy in their walk with God. No sense of spiritual celebration, only spiritual obligation. And so they are, the Pharisees, a brand of religious zombies. They walk around, they wear clothes, they say and do the right sorts of things, but there is the smell of death about them. Don't get too close or they'll devour you, all right? The epic fail in this story is the epic fail of an older brother who spends his entire life right next to the father and never gets to know the father. The epic fail in this story is an older brother who has access to everything in the father's house but doesn't consider himself wealthy. That's the fail completely clueless when it comes to the riches he has in his father's house, completely clueless when it comes to the heart and compassion of his father. And some Christians look down their noses at sin-addicted neighbors. Can't help but feel a little bit better than that person that's a drug addict or that person that's on their third marriage, or that person that is just obviously not close to God. They feel a little more entitled to God's grace. I mean, sure, God's grace for everybody, but I mean, come on. Yeah. A little more entitled. A little more worthy of God's mercy. Now, let's, be, let's be fair, after all. Let's think reasonably about this stuff in the Bible, Right? And unfortunately, it is a simple thing to find yourself practicing a walking dead discipleship. And unfortunately, it is a simple thing to begin to think as of others as being less worthy of God's grace. But when the heart of the Father is at the center of your walk, is at the center of your faith, then you begin to wake up to what it's all about, really. And you begin to be motivated by the love of God. You begin to be motivated by the gratefulness you feel realizing what He has done 
for you? How do you wake up a heart that's dead? How do you turn a religious zombie into a God-loving disciple? 2005, uh, Ian McConnell, helicopter pilot, tells a story about getting a call at 4 o'clock in the morning, a call to come down to his naval air station there, and, and, and he and his crew and several other crews of H-60 helicopters were being called into service, round-the-clock missions. Hurricane Katrina had just devastated that part of America. They were being called in, and Ian McConnell talks about as his helicopter and his crew saw the devastation for the first time, a, a train that had been thrown off of its train tracks, a houseboat floating down U.S. Highway 90. Um, they talk, he talks about the, the, the just pit in their stomach as they began to approach the outskirts of New Orleans, and it was a city underwater. And so mission after mission around the clock, they were rescuing people from their roofs. They were rescuing people from the top of their businesses or, or, or from the roof of their house. They were rescuing all of these people and taking them to the helipad at, at, the, super, at the Superdome. And he says that their first three mesh, missions were highly successful. They rescued 89 people. But then things changed. Their fourth mesh, mission, they went to house after house and no one got on board the helicopter. The people refused to be picked up. Some of them asked the helicopter to go bring them some food and some water. They would be just fine. They would wait out the storm, but they did not want to get on the helicopter. And McConnell talks about how his crew pleaded with people. You don't realize how dangerous this is, how unhealthy this is. I mean, the water is not just going to reside here in a couple of days. This is going to be a long process, but the people refused to get on. And so they came back to base time after time, empty. And he says, you know, his crew and, and, and himself, they were angry. They were frustrated. They couldn't figure this out. What is going on? And he said, at first, they thought the people were just ungrateful. I mean, they didn't understand the money that had been spent on the helicopter fuel, the flight time, the danger that the crew had put themselves in trying to make these, these rescues, right? But he says, then it dawned on them. Instead of being ungrateful... The truth was, the people refusing help had no idea how desperate their situation really was. No idea how desperate their situation really was. And this is what changes things for me. I think this is what changes things for the disciple. It's when you realize the extent of your desperation without the cross. When it, you realize it's not just that other guy who, who's a drug addict or that other person that's in a, the, whatever, you name it, okay? It's not just that person. It's not just the celebrity or the athlete that's fallen from grace. I mean, it is, it is me, it is you in a completely desperate situation, completely lost without God's direct intervention. No amount of good works, no amount of religious duties, no amount of my own personal obedience gets me saved. It doesn't. If it did, the Pharisees would be standing at the front of the line in heaven. It doesn't get you saved. It's only the blood of Christ, only that. 
And so it is a great equalizer. And it becomes a source of gratefulness in my heart, in our hearts, as we understand the desperation of our situation without Jesus Christ. Paul talks to the Romans, quotes from some Old Testament passages, and he says this in Romans 3, 10 to 12. It is written, there is no one righteous, not even one There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He says, do you understand how desperate our situation is without grace? Reaching out for the law, reaching out for a performance-based spirituality is completely hopeless. Left to my own righteousness, left to my own understanding, left to my own resources, I am lost. But the Father intervenes. Gives us a gift of salvation through Jesus. And the Father opens His own heart and says, come on in and stay a while. Let's get to know each other. Let's do life together. So here's the thing. I I cannot think of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I cannot think of his agony and not be moved by that. I cannot think of the sacrifice he made when this rebellious child came home and not be touched by that. And so as as we... share the Lord's Supper together on a Sunday morning, as we sing old hymns or we sing new praise choruses or we pray in Jesus' name or we share the love of Christ and embrace here when we're together, wow, just so grateful. All of that takes on this freshness and this life because I realize that it's all because of the blood of Jesus. And there remains thanksgiving, there remains gratefulness. There doesn't, there's no space there for self-righteousness. <laughs> there's no space there for looking down at some wayward sinner. There's only place for rejoicing when someone comes home to God. Or when someone just starts to take their first baby steps in the direction of God. There is rejoicing. Luke chapter 15 Back to the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Thank God he did. (laughs) 